components and, and pointing for folks towards Jesus. I pray that the people here are like that you would touch their hearts and create just a just a soil that's that's ready to receive uh, um, the seeds that are that that grow into a great harvest. Lord, help them to receive your Spirit and and to to know you through this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I all right. So one of the things I've learned about since I moved to Big Sandy is uh, is is farmer repair. Um, I, I and I'll, I'll this may be a difficult idea. I I suspect that most of the folks in the room know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, in the lobby, there is a light that flickers. Have any of y'all noticed it? It is the worst thing in the entire world <laughs> for that 20 minutes before service starts when I'm, I'm out there in that light. And, and in order to repair this, um, we have changed the bulbs. I was here one day when, when um, um, a couple of guys pulled out the entire fixture and put a whole new fixture in. We've replaced the outlet next to it, the switch that turns it on and off, and there is nothing in the world that seems to make this light not flicker. Um, and, and we've had a lot of discussion about it and a lot of, a lot of um, hey, what if we try this? Hey, what if we try that? And for the most part, the best solution has been to flip the switch off <laughs> and leave that little area there dark. And it is much better dark than flickering. Can, amen? <laughs> um, and, and Ross explained it to me that this half of the building was built by farmers. Um, farmers have a habit of building things so that they are done and so that they work. Right? I, in, in my house, if, if you go to a, any spot with two light switches next to each other, um, it's a guess as to which light is going to turn on when you flip the switch, right? Like, sometimes it's the switch closest to the light, sometimes it's on the other side for no clear reason. Um, and I haven't undone it yet. That was, when I interviewed here, that was something that Larry told me. Well, you'll just have to rewire it, and I have not. Um, but but there, there's sort of this approach where, like, farmers will take on a project, and they have the end result of making it work, Right? And they just make it work the best way possible. Well, no, not the best way possible, the most expedient way possible, which in farmer world is the best way, right? <laughs> um, can I have this back? Are you? She caught that I, nope, I thought she fixed my mistake, um, but nobody caught it. Uh, so as we dive into this section of, of uh, judges, this is the story of the farmer's fix, okay? And, and it'll make sense when we get there, um, but, but it is... It is things working, but, like, if you look at it too close, you realize, like, that there's a whole other thing going on. Like, it, it's, it's working, but it's working through, like, God, God doing it his way. Um, so as we, as we dive in, like, a little background here. Um, the book of Judges is sort of the story between um, the people of Israel. And some of you all know this because you've been here, and some of you all have been farming, so you don't. Um, so I'm not trying to repeat myself, but... Um, the book of Judges is the story of like the, the people of God in the promised land between when they arrived at the end of the book of Joshua and when they get their first king. And so there's a whole stretch of about 500 years where they have no king and like God is their ruler and occasionally he raises up judges or deliverers to take care of problems that arise. Um, if you follow the pattern, the pattern of the book is the first judge is fantastic and awesome by the time you get to the last judge, he is terrible. 
and they just get more and more awful as the story goes, right? They, there's just a downward slide. And um, the judge in this particular story, there are two of them, kind of, um, are Deborah and Barak. We started out with the story of Deborah and Barak last week. And what happens is Deborah is the judge over the nation, um, but she brings in Barak, who is also like the deliverer, but he's never called a judge because he kind of he flubs it. Because Deborah calls him out and says, hey, God is sending you to deliver your people. Go get an army and go fight the bad guy. Um, and and uh, um, when you do that, um, God will hand them over to you and you'll be victorious. And Barak isn't real confident. Like the enemy has this great like technology, chariots, which are killing platforms. Like in the ancient world, it was a trump card. And the, the Jewish people, they don't have chariots. And so they don't really want to go out and fight. They don't do a good job of fighting against against uh, chariots in history. Um, and so what we see here is like Barak says, well, I don't really want to do this. How about if you go with me? And Deborah's like, all right, I'll go with you. But like because you're unwilling to just jump when God says jump, you're not getting any glory out of this. I'll basically tell you what to do. And then God will hand the opposing king over to, or the opposing general over to a woman who will get all the glory for this victory. Right? And, and like the assumption, if you're reading it for the first time, the assumption is that it's going to be Deborah, but it's not. Um, right in the middle of the story is like they prepare to go out and fight. Um, there is this weird little verse about Haber, the Kenite. Now, this is verse 11. This is, we talked about this briefly last week. It's an aside. It just sort of sticks out like a sore thumb in the text. Now, Haber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which was near Kadesh. So, out of the blue, we have this guy who is um, a Kenite, and the Kenites were like wanderers. Right, they were nomads, and they never quite—they're not really Jewish people. They're not really Canaanites. They're not really anybody. They're kind of gypsies, right? They sort of wander around and they stay as a large group so they can defend each other. Except for this Hobab guy, who or Haber guy, who decides, well, I'm leaving. He breaks away from the rest of them for whatever reason, and he sets up shop elsewhere. Now we find out, like in another spot, that. Um, Caesarea, the opposing general, has a treaty with, um, with Haber. And, like, it's a non-aggression treaty, which is good for Haber because he is probably not powerful enough to beat Caesar, right? Caesar was really tough and really scary. Um, the Jewish people have legends about how awesome he was. Um, we talked about that last week. You can go listen to it online if you want to, like, sort of clarify. But, but Haber had this non-aggression treaty, and... Um, so they're there. We get into 17, having been defeated. Caesarea's army has been killed to the man. Everybody fighting on his side is dead except for Caesarea. But Caesarea fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Haber, the Kenite. Now, he has, like, fled, and he goes through this, like, like um, settlement where Haber has set up shop. And Jael, Haber's wife, sees him coming, right? Um... Uh, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, for there was a peace between Jabin and the king of Hazor, um, the house of Heber, the Kenite. So now there's a peace treaty between them, right? We said that already. Now, here's where this is about to get tricky. We have a fairly liberated attitude toward women in our culture, right? So you, in order to understand what happens here, you've got to kind of back up and pull your mind out of our culture 
and you got to put it there, right? Um, women had very different status, and there were very different cultural expectations um, in the ancient world. Like, like there was there was. Um, well, well, we'll go through them as we, as we get to them. 18. And Jael came out to meet Cesara and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So Jael goes out and she greets this guy, right, which is against the social rule, right? Her husband has the honor of meeting strangers or guests, right? Like in that culture, the honor of being the first one to greet somebody who is coming into your place was a huge deal, and she steps up and takes that honor. So she's broken the rule. An ancient Israelite reading this would be kind of horrified. This would be really kind of offensive, right? She is super presumptuous. She's kind of wearing the britches in the family. Got it? Like she is stepping up and taking initiative that does not belong to her, and the Jewish people will be like, whoa. And let's take it a step further. Um, for her to invite a man into her tent was kind of trashy, right? Like you would never, ever, 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 ever do that. If she was a Jewish woman, this might be enough to get you executed. Got it? Like this was a huge deal because women like would not be alone with men who were not their husband. In fact, in some like places, they wouldn't go out in public without a husband with them. Like you wouldn't just go to the market. You had to go with your husband. Like, it was a big deal. This was not a small thing that she has just done. So a Jewish reader suddenly like, oh, my gosh, he did what? Um, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. So she hides him. Now, rugs, we think about rugs, right? Like, rugs are not pleasant. They're nice, not nice blankets. This is probably like sheepskin. Heavy, hot, uncomfortable. Right, But it is a darn good place to hide. And so she hides him in her tent. Now, there are all kinds of guesses as to why she did that. Bible didn't tell us. right? And so everything we read here, or everything that like people say about why she invited him in, is, is a complete guess. It is. There are people who say, well, she was a Jew who was like married to... But really, there's not a whole lot of support for that. There's nothing in the text that says that, right? Some people say that she did this with a plan already in mind. Some people say that, like, I mean, there are all these guesses. The one thing we know about her was she didn't care that much about custom. And she was kind of a strong woman, right? So she hides this guy under a rug. It was probably really hot. Um, the Middle East is a fairly hot place. But hiding under a giant sheepskin rug was probably really hot. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. He tries to take some initiative in the story, because right now she's in control, right? Hey, come on into my place. Hey, let me throw a rug on you. Um, hey, can I have some water? He tries to take control, and she immediately grabs it back. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. She gives him some nice warm milk as he's under a blanket. Anybody see what's coming? Um, and this guy is tired. Um, and he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. Of course he's going to say this, because if somebody shows up looking for him, they're looking to kill him, right? But beyond that, if her husband shows up and says, hey, is there anybody here? And she says, oh, yeah, I got a man in the tent. Like, that's problems, right? And it's problems for both of them. Because, like, while Yale might catch some flack from her husband, it's almost certainly the case that this guy ain't getting out of it alive, Right? And so, she, hey, stand at the door of the tent and, and, and 
shoo away anybody who tries to find out what's going on here. Keep me hidden. Now, I'm going to hit a quick aside. For a Jewish person, for anybody in the Middle East, um, hospitality is a huge, huge deal. Everybody with me? If you invite someone into your home, the expectation is that you protect them more than you protect your own family. To turn someone away instead of inviting them in, by the way, is a big deal. You would never do it because if you're in a desert and somebody comes by and they're, you know, wandering through the desert and you don't take care of them, they could die, right? And so, like, it was a cultural agreement. Everybody agreed, you know, you take people in and you take care of them, right? And you can see where this is a big deal, like um, the story of Lot, Abraham's nephew, in Sodom and Gomorrah, when like he takes in these these strangers into his house, and the people from town show up, and they're like, "Hey, send them out. We want to do yucky things to them." Um, he says, "No, take my daughters instead. Don't take them. Like they're guests in my house. You can't." I mean, like the guy's willing to sacrifice his daughters rather than like his guests. It was a huge deal. It was something that. Um, God, like, actually, if you read the prophets, God frequently will say, your lack of hospitality to strangers is enough that I'm judging you, right? It's up there with, with the worst of sins. Like, this is no small deal. He is under their house's protection and under a peace treaty um, and under a blanket. But Yael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg, Right? A nice long tent peg. We're not talking a plastic deal. We're talking a big metal rod. By the way, these these wanderers, they were one of the only cultures in the area that did metalworking. So it would have been a big metal spike, which would have been a fairly unusual thing, but these guys would have had it, and a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. I, it's almost as <laughs> hey, the text says it. <laughs> um, she waits until he's asleep. She comes up behind him. She pounds a tent peg through his skull and pins him to the ground. Right? Oh, by the way, this is a PG-rated sermon. Um, <laughs> again, there are all kinds of guesses as to why she did this. She may have done it because she was protecting the nation of Israel. Right? She may have done it. Um, I'll try and put this very gently. It was not unusual for men to take liberties with women in that culture. And in this setting, there's the potential that Cesare might like have some other expectations. Everybody with me? Was that gentle enough? If you don't understand it, ask your mom or dad when we're out of service. Um, <laughs> and, and so like she may have done it like as an act of self-defense. She may have known that Cesare was like pretty, pretty tough and pretty nasty and like an oppressor of people, and she may have done it because she didn't like him. We have no idea. But what we do know is that what she has just done is violate, violate one of the most significant rules in this culture, right? So now, for a Jewish reader, a woman takes her husband's honor and invites someone in, invites a man she's not married to into her tent, offensive, 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 lulls him to sleep, and murders him while he's under her protection, violating a peace treaty. She has broken every rule she has come near, right? Who's the hero of the story, though? Well, she is, right? The, the, the Jewish people had, like, songs and legends about how scary this guy was. He was the boogeyman incarnate. And, like, this woman kills him. 
She does God's work by pinning him to the floor with a tent stake. And so, like, for the reader, he's going to be a little conflicted here. And to a degree, he's going to be inclined to say nothing nice about this lady. I watched a video recently. I don't know if any of y'all noticed there's an election going on. And it's not been a very pleasant one. Everybody aware of this? I watched a video where this guy was walking through a crowd at a convention with quotes. And he said, do you agree with your candidate when he said or when she said this? And he read the quote. And said, oh, I agree with that completely. And then what about this one? Oh, I agree with that completely. What about this quote? Oh, that's fantastic. I believe that wholeheartedly. Oh, wait, it was the other candidate that said that. Do you still agree with him? No. And they had like 15 different people do it because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if the statement's right. What matters is I hate that other politician and nothing they do can possibly be right. Everybody with me? That's the mindset here. There is a venom attached to this where these guys would see this woman violating everything they hold dear and they would be like, oh my gosh, this is a horrible thing. This is offensive beyond words. They, she would be executed for any one of these things, but all of them together is a huge deal, but she's on their side. Like, and so they're kind of torn at this point. Any reader of this would be like, well, I guess she's a hero, but man, I can't believe she That's really bad, and that's really bad, and that's really bad. By the way, I'm going to flash back here. Um, Ehud, do you guys remember this sermon? It was like a month ago now. Ehud was a man who, under the auspice of, I'm coming to give you honor, murders a foreign king. He charges up the stairs and stabs him through the belly with a sword. And the belly, the guy's so fat that the sword disappears into his belly. And so, like, like he basically assassinates a foreign king, and that's how he delivers the nation. And the Jewish people probably would have read that and been like, man, that guy's heroic. It, sure, he did something that was wrong, but it doesn't matter. He did, the, you know. And now we have a contrast. And it's actually a contrast that for the Jewish people would make them back up and say, huh, we're no better than this, are we? Right? Because the ends does not justify the means. Right? Like, you cannot do evil things in order to serve God. And the bottom line here, like for the, the writer of this, he would be putting this out there and saying, hey, guys, you think you're great, but pay attention to how you're living. Pay attention to how you're acting. It is not acceptable to be evil in order to do good things. You serve God in everything or you don't serve him at all. Um, Yale would have been this horribly offensive story um, that they would have been conflicted over. But it's right next to another horrible story that they probably wouldn't have been conflicted over because a man did it. And because a man who was Jewish and not a foreigner or a pagan or whatever. Like, this is, this is like, really deft, right? It's really clever writing. Um, 4.22, And behold, as Barak was pursuing Caesarea, Yael went out, or Jael, went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man who you are seeking. And he went into her tent, and there lay Caesarea, dead with the tent peg in his temple. Um, so, like, Barak was told, hey, you're not going to get the glory of killing the opposing king. You won't get the recognition you thought you were going to get. And he doesn't. She steals it. And she steals it in the most, like, despicable way possible. Right? 
And so Barak, because of his doubt and because of his unwillingness, loses like this huge opportunity to honorably kill this enemy king, and God provides a way on his own, and a way that is like hugely socially acceptable um, or unacceptable. What do we say about Yale? Like, there's always this attempt to make like someone a hero or not a hero. Look, she is this horrible woman. Look, she was this great woman. She was the woman that God used who did something very scary to a very bad man, right? Um, Do the ends justify the means? I don't think so. I think that's actually the point of the story. Um, But the other point of the story is that Barak, for all of his, like, fake bravado, once the battle started, um, doubted God. And because he doubted God, God took care of it his own way. His own way that the Jewish people would be like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that. But it's it's no different than the other Jewish fella. Um, So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. So who won the battle? God did. Did Yale win? No. Did Barak win? No. Did Deborah win? No. God won the battle. God sent a rainstorm that bogged down the, the chariots. God sent somebody who, like, basically murdered the opposing general. Um, God won this battle. The Jewish people didn't. Um, they were never going to win it, right? Now, the point behind that, let's back this up, every one of us faces battles, Right? And a lot of times it's not the battles we think we face. The battle that I face um, is against my own flesh, and you're the same way, whether you know it or not, right? Like we battle against sin in our hearts. We battle against brokenness in our lives. We try to please God, but we struggle because we are fallen, because sin has infected us, and because like, like we naturally are inclined to rebel. Um, God has won a victory on our behalf. We will not, will not win on our own, like through... Jesus, God's son came, he lives this perfect life, he dies for our sins, he defeats death, he defeats temptation, he defeats sin, and if we are his followers, that, like, perfect sacrifice that he was, that atoning death covers us, and we're forgiven, right? We don't earn our way into heaven by doing things, right? We can't play Yale, and I'll do the right thing long enough, or I'll do things my way just to get right with God, like, we can't do it. You cannot um, be right before God on your own effort. And let's take it a step further. You can't do wrong things a right way. Like we're called to change people's hearts to lead them to Jesus, right? There's a mindset that we can make people right by changing laws. That is not true. You cannot make people right by changing laws. You can change people's hearts and that's it. And our call is to follow Jesus perfectly, to demonstrate perfect obedience, to like, like see his teachings, love our neighbor as ourselves, serve people who um, we don't want to serve sometimes, pray for people who are our enemies, um, take care of the people who honestly can't take care of themselves, care for the poor, care for the um, widow, care for the, the lonely, care for everybody who doesn't deserve care and can't care for themselves. Like, be the person that Jesus has called us to be, imitating him in this world. And that's how we're, like, right before God, by belonging to Jesus and by growing to become like him. Um, we can't do it our way and force people to become that. Um, and actually, there's a long history of that in the church, and the Jewish people did it as well, like where they would conquer a land and say, congratulations, you're all Christians now. Well, okay. It's not how it works. We change the lives of the people around us by being like Jesus every day. I got a story from Luke we're going to jump to, right? Um, Jesus is teaching one day, and actually the reason I picked this out is because it parallels really well, right? Um, Jesus is teaching one day. He says, um, talking to a lawyer, um, 
but he see because Jesus talked to sinful people, so he's talking to a lawyer. Um, but he, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, "And who is my neighbor?" Because Jesus beforehand says, "Love your neighbor as yourself." And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell amongst robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and he saw him when he passed, or he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now there's kind of a joke built in here, like this, this priest would be going from the temple to Jericho to, to perform sacrifices, right? That would be the only reason he'd be going. And it's downhill, so we know which direction he's going. He's going down the road, right? He's going downhill. He passes by this fella, and in spots, this road is about this wide, right? <laughs> or, and he sees this guy laying on the road, and he goes all the way to the other side and steps over him. <laughs> so he doesn't touch him, because if the guy is dead, he becomes ceremonially unclean, and he won't be able to perform the temple rites. And so rather than help the guy, he says, well, it's much better to step over him and avoid becoming unclean so I can serve God properly in the temple. Um, sorry, i got to find it again. So likewise, a Levite, a Levite, so you've got a priest, a guy who serves in the temple. You have a Levite who is a man who is an expert in the law, and his job is to serve God like, for, like that's what he did for a living. When he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Also, went all the way to the other side, because if he touches him, he becomes unclean, and that's no good. I can't serve God if I touch this guy who's dying. Um, but a Samaritan. Now, there's a joke there, too. Watch this. You have a priest, a Levite, and in the ancient cultural, the, the culture, the natural expectation is the third is a... Pharisee, right? Because that would be the pairing. A priest, a Levite, and a Pharisee walk into a bar. Um, and, and so he would have been in this crowd of people, and Jesus is talking, and you can almost imagine as he's telling this story, right? You know, the priest went all the way around, and the Levite went all the way around, and then the Pharisees would sort of get ready because they know they're next, and they know that the third person in the story is going to act differently, right? And so they get ready, and when Jesus says, a Samaritan, now, Samaritans, Jewish people, if you walk through Samaria on your way, like, like anywhere, when you got to the edge of the like, countryside, you would hit your shoes to get all the dust off of them so that you didn't bring any of that dirty Samaritan dust into Israel, right? They hated, hated, hated the Samaritans. They called them dogs. It was a standard word. And in fact, Jesus, even like he's talking to a Samaritan woman, he says, you know, she says, well, can you heal me? And he says, well, is it good for the food for children to be fed to the dogs? And he's basically saying, look, you're a Samaritan. I'm not here for you. Um, these are people that are hated. And so for instead of a Pharisee, but a Samaritan, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And when he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which one of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell amongst the robbers? Now, the question of who is your neighbor is a big debate in the ancient world, like the rabbis debated it. And when they would debate it, like they would agree on different things. Like every Jewish person in the world is your neighbor because they're like us. Now, the really, really liberal scholars would say the Romans are your neighbors, right? Because, you know, they're also people, 
and like God wants us to love everyone, there was no Jewish scholar before Jesus comes along who said Samaritans were neighbors because they hated the Samaritans. And certainly God doesn't want you to be nice to that guy, right? Um, And in fact, actually, the prejudice there is outlined. You can see it. He said, the one who showed him mercy. The guy is sitting there, this teacher of the law, this lawyer, is sitting there, and he hates the Samaritan so much he can't even say out loud, the Samaritan. So he avoids saying the Samaritan. He says, oh, the guy who showed him mercy. Um, it would be hard to come up with a cultural parallel for Christians. Um, I don't know. This would be the rough equivalent of saying, well, you know, a uh, uh, Southern Baptist pastor and a televangelist and then um, a transvestite. Right? Like the, 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 the line is hard to draw in our culture because we don't hate quite as effectively as they did. Um, we're good at it. But, you know. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So, you, like, the point of the story here is, again, um, the contrast. And what we find is that God has this habit of using and loving pretty much whoever he feels like. Right? Like, it's easy to back up and say, oh, well, God doesn't love that guy because... He might vote for Hillary Clinton, or he might vote for Donald Trump, or he might, um, you know, he might like people who are the same gender as him. He might, you know, whatever. Like, there are all these reasons we come up with to hate folks. Um, and at the end of the day, like, like, God loves folks. God is in the habit of loving people. In the case of Yale, God uses who he uses for his own glory, and that's all there is to it, right? And it's unacceptable for followers of God to do wicked things in order to serve him. In the case of the Good Samaritan, the story is God loves these folks. They can be neighbors, and you ought to love them too. Um, I'm bringing it up honestly because it's a parallel and because it's a very difficult verse, right? Like it's really hard to come up with strong applications. I I can tell you don't pin your husband to the floor with a tent peg. Got it? Um, Don't, but... When it boils down what we can take out of this, like what does God give us? What do we do with this? Um, First off, serving God means following him, right? Being obedient to him. Um, Secondly, God uses who he uses, and he's glorified by who he's glorified by. Like So if you see folks who are um, horrible and we don't like those people, but they glorify God, praise God and say they glorify God, right? And that's all there is to it. There was a long time when um, believers would not sit in the same row as a Catholic. I actually, when I was, and this wasn't even all that long ago, when I was in high school, it wasn't that long ago, almost as long as since Nathan was in high school, um, <laughs> I, uh, I attended a, uh, a mission project where we went out and like painted houses in this, in this neighborhood and all that. Um, and, oh my gosh. Sorry, my thing is... Um, we, we went out and we did all this work, and during the week, we attended a church service at a Catholic church, and there were all these parents from this Christian Reformed, like, Dutch Calvinist, you know, church who were kind of horrified by the prospect of their kids going to a Catholic service. Oh, my gosh. Can't bring our kids there. It's nonsense, right? Folks who glorify God glorify God. Um People who are our brothers and sisters in Christ are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And honestly, folks who don't know Jesus are folks that we're supposed to love, serve, and lead to Jesus. We're not supposed to imitate them. We're not supposed to imitate the world. We're not supposed to act wicked. We're not supposed to abandon what Christ teaches, right? Because honestly, Jesus sets a very high standard 
for like obedience to God and, and righteousness. Like Jesus really does. He teaches some pretty difficult stuff. But he teaches them like from the prospect of love God and be obedient because that's what it means to love God. Not be obedient because that's how you earn your way into heaven. Um, this is a bit of a scattered message because it's a hard thing to preach, right? What do you do with the gal who p- pins a guy to the floor? Um, you don't sleep in her tent. Um, <laughs> um, I guess if there's a final, I guess if there's a final, <laughs> um, and the moral of the story is don't take warm milk from strangers. I, <laughs> um, my wife's waving something at me. I'm scared. Oh, she found a nail. <laughs> oh, you found three. <laughs> um, what, what do, I guess if there's a last element here, I talked about the idea that God redeems what he redeems. Like when God acts, he acts to redeem, right? And in the previous passage, like the previous thing that we talked about, we talked about Deborah being this leader and that God's actions basically point out to the Jewish people, hey, women, women can do pretty awesome stuff. Like, you can't just neglect them. Like, this is a woman who led the nation and who was heroic and who was strong and everything else. And ignoring that and saying, well, yeah, except that women can't be heroic and they can't lead and they can't. Not really right, right? But we go beyond that and yell. We see where a woman delivers the nation from a man who was so scary. They sang songs about how scary he was, right? He was bigger and had a bigger beard than Ross. For those of you all who were here last week, remember? Big, scary terrifying guy and a woman delivered them Um, god can do what he wants with who he wants in the way he wants and we can't get around that and we can't look and say well you can't because or i can't because fact of the matter is obedience to god and faithfulness to god produces his results period right um let's close in prayer my challenge for you this week it's hard to come up with a challenge first off is to not murder anyone is to not go camping <laughs> in a tent. Yeah, RVs are all right, <laughs> but that's not camping anyway. Um, the, my challenge to you this week is um, as you walk through your life, right, as you step from place to place, as you look at your Facebook page, as you look at um, anything you encounter, ask yourself these two questions. When you encounter folks that your inclination is, I don't like those guys. Ask yourself, am I imitating the heart of Jesus when I do this? Because honestly, like our own prejudices are the hardest, hardest, hardest thing to get beyond, aren't they? Um, There are people, groups, that the church doesn't get along with. And if we're not loving those folks, we're not really being obedient to Christ, period. No one way or the other about it. Um, I worked at one of the most, you know, when I worked at the children's home, one of the most inspirational fellows I met was a guy named Steve Ross, who does not listen to my sermons. I'm glad he won't hear this. Um, But Steve started a program to do um, treatment for juvenile sex offenders because no one in northern Indiana would do anything with them except put them in jail. And these are like 10-year-olds, right? And his attitude was, we're going to do something for the lepers of our culture, Nobody wants to live next door to that guy. And we're going to take him in, and we're going to love him, and we're going to take care of him, and we're going to do everything we can for him, because that's what Jesus teaches us we need to do. Does that mean we let people hurt us? No. Steve was very cautious, and he was very stern, and he didn't like me very much. And <laughs> but, but he was right. right. 
Who are the people we do not like? Who are the people that we're rooting against on Judgment Day? I can't wait for God to show up and step on those guys. If you find those folks in your life, you need to change it. Right? You need to figure out how to serve those people in a practical way and love them because that's what God calls us to do. Um, The second half of this is to look at your own life and ask yourself, am I obedient um, in everything or do I cut corners? Are there farmer fixes that I live out in my moral life? You know what I'm talking about, right? It's okay for me to live this way because, and God will overlook it. Mm, God may forgive us, but it damages our relationship, right? I get into arguments with my wife sometimes, not as often as I used to. Um, because I've gotten better. She was already perfect. Um, and sometimes when we argue, I will walk away and just not talk to her. And I know I do this because she hates it. Right? And I mean, you would think as long as we've been married, she'd be tired of hearing me talk by now. <laughs> but I might win an argument. Am I doing the right thing? Am I right before God? Is God accepting this as the right way for me to live in my marriage? No. Right? No, not at all. Um, Every part of our lives, right? Every part of our lives. Are we bringing it into order with him? Are we walking with him as somebody like, I love you, God, and this is part of being in a relationship with you? Right? Do we line up? Or are we playing the AL? Ends justifies the means, baby. (laughs) Right before God, but I can murder people. Let's let's close in prayer, and we'll, we'll close with a blessing. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd be with us. Um, help us to help us to be obedient in all things, Lord. Help us to, to walk in, in righteousness, Lord. Help us to, to look around us and to recognize that you can do what you can do with anyone. That you know, we're, not, we're not God's gift to you, um, but that Jesus was your gift to us. And that you use us at all. That you use us to your glory is, is a blessing beyond words. Help us to love the folks around us. Help us to recognize that our own actions um, need to be in harmony with Christ. Lord, that, that your glory is brought about most when we love you most, when we demonstrate like the love of Christ to the people around us, that the most glorifying thing we can do isn't to beat the bad guy, but to love him. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's uh, stand up and close up.